Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Ava. And I'm Beth. And on Minds Matter, we explore the research from neuroscience and psychology whilst talking through our own personal experiences. So in this episode, I spoke to Dr. Sakira Hudson, who is an assistant professor at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. We talked about how people's perceptions of hierarchy and power influence their empathy and counter empathy towards others, depending on those other people's social status. We also discussed Dr. Hudson's theories and some of her empirical work looking at intersectionality, which in psychology is really just examining more than one social identity at a time and trying to understand how considering multiple identities simultaneously influence attitudes, perceptions, and behavior. My name is Sakira Hudson, but I go by Kira, and I am an assistant professor at UC Berkeley's House School of Business. I just started, so I'm a newly minted tenure-track faculty, and my work broadly focuses on hierarchy. I study how hierarchies are formed, how they are maintained, and how they intersect. And in particular, I focus on the psychological processes involved in those three things. And so in my work, I focused on the role of emotions in justifying societal harm. I've looked at the role of stereotypes in treatment and perceptions of people. And I've looked at the role of legitimizing myths in why people believe that there is social progress or not. Could you expand a little bit about why you think hierarchy and power are so important to study in intergroup relations and in society in general? Just because I think a lot of the time it's more of an implicit thing that's being studied, but a lot of time it's just racial groups or social class, but it's not explicitly about power. That's a great question. So hierarchies are everywhere. I think humans are in some ways naturally disposed to organize things in terms of hierarchies. We need to understand where our place is in the world and our place in the world is dictated by how much status and power that we have. I think all of our relationships have some element of power in them. So you have parent-child the parent has more power than the child does. And then those that hierarchy or that those power relationships change over time as the kid gets older, gets their own voice, and also has different thoughts about how much power they should have and when compared to the parent. The parent's like, you are not old enough to talk to me that way. And the child's like, oh, I'm 18. What does that have to do with anything? So clearly power is everywhere. And I think when we forget, or I don't want to say we forget, but by not centering the power dynamics that are at play, I think we miss a lot of really important dynamics. So when we think about race and gender as identities that might have their own cultural values or own cultural norms, et cetera, et cetera, I think we miss the fact that part of the reason why gender and race play out the way that they do is because of a difference in the social, economic, and political power that these groups have. And if those power dynamics weren't there, would we, would gender be the way gender is? No. Would race be the way race is? No. And I think that understanding of hierarchy has been influenced by my advisor's work on social dominance theory that talks about these different forms of hierarchy. But if you think about gender and race in these, in these hierarchies and why they show up the way that they do, there's a lot of different dynamics between people that don't have hierarchies in the same way. Why don't we talk about people who are redheaded and people who are brown, have brown hair? That could be a hierarchy, but it doesn't really map on that strongly to these social, economic, and political things that we care about. 
Why? Because that's the way that hierarchies have have formed. And so that's why you can't just think about identity. Identities are, are underscored by hierarchy and power. And if we forget them, we might think that the differences between redheads and blonde haired people are the same as between white and black people, because these are both identities you can hold that have their own culture, their own stereotypes, their own norms. But they're not the same at all because of that underlying power difference. Okay. So we've been talking about hierarchy, how important it is, but as psychologists, obviously we have to measure these things somehow. And so typically something that you use is a concept called social dominance orientation or social dominance theory. So before we get into the work that you've done, I was just wondering if you could explain that concept, how you measure this and why it's so important to understand our perceptions of hierarchies. Awesome. Social dominance theory is a theory that Jim Sedanius and Felicia Prado developed back in 1995. I should probably know that date. Anywho, that explains why hierarchies are ubiquitous in human societies. And so it's a pretty, I don't know, it, it has completely impacted my work, but it talks about how there are hierarchy attenuating and hierarchy enhancing forces that happen on the interpersonal level, the intergroup level, and the societal level that keep certain hierarchies intact. And so social dominance theory argues that there's only three types of hierarchies. You have age, gender, and arbitrary set. And so age is a hierarchy that exists in, in, and so when they talk about what hierarchies are ubiquitous, they're saying across human, like the history of humans on this earth. And so while there might be differences in the level of patriarchy, for the most part, most societies are patriarchal. That is that the male species or people who identify as male tend to have more power than people who identify as being a woman. Now, that means that there's a fundamental difference between race and gender because race is arbitrary. And what Danius would say that he means by arbitrary is that you don't find racial differences across human history. It isn't the case that people who have brown skin we're always treated with less power and resources than people who are of fair skin, as an example. Also thinking about what is race, how we decided to cleave race is based on, again, arbitrary distinctions that have historical meaning, but not fundamental meaning. How do people from Egypt identify? It depends on who you talk to because of that history around what is, what race could be replaced by, we have conch shells, and that determines who is a member of one group and who's a member of another group. I don't know, it's like the yellow-bellied snitches of the Dr. Seuss story as an example of just how arbitrary group membership is. And so when you think about how to measure people's preferences for hierarchy, social dominance theory talks about hierarchies are really important. We have these three different types of hierarchies. Okay, why is it that humans care so much about hierarchy? We can measure people's preferences for hierarchy. Do I like hierarchy? Do I think hierarchies are the way that groups should be organized? And that is where social dominance orientation comes in. So social dominance orientation measures the extent to which people accept and promote group-based inequality. And people who have relatively higher levels of SDO, and we tend to call them social dominance, they care about maintaining a current social hierarchy and believe that some social groups should be at the top of that hierarchy and others at the bottom. And so when I think the example item in the SDO scale is some social groups should be at the top of some social groups should have more power than others. That is a very explicit item. And so when you look at how people tend to respond on this scale, 
most people don't want to agree with it. The mean of a, of the scale, which tends to range between one being strongly, I think it's like favor and oppose, strongly oppose versus strongly favor on that one to seven, the mean tends to hover around 2.5. And yet social dominance orientation is one of the most predictive ideologies that we have in our arsenal because it, it predicts so many things. And I think it predicts so many things because of just how fun, like fundamental hierarchies are in our like human and group interactions. Just a quick question about people responding on this scale. When people are responding that they don't believe that hierarchies should exist, do you think that's genuine or do you think that's like maybe demand effect where people are like, I kind of I like hierarchies, but I'm not going to tell you. I absolutely think that's true. And I think that's where, but even then, in that little bit of variance that does exist, there there is predictive value. There's a graduate student at the law school at UC Berkeley who's actually working on implicit measures of SDO, trying to see if we can tap into how people understand hierarchy, how much preferences they have for it on this implicit level. In my own work, I have probably broken what I'm supposed to do as SDO and started to measure people's preferences for group hierarchy, but in a particular domain. So I've started to look at, for example, political SDO. Can we see differences in what groups should be at the top of the hierarchy and what groups should be at the bottom in uh, smaller domains? The reason why I'm breaking the foundation of SDO is because SDO is meant to be a group level phenomenon. It's not supposed to be about one specific group. And, and that was one of the biggest critiques of SDO when it first came out, that no, this preference for hierarchy, this is just about race. This is just about gender. And it's not. It's really this like broad ideology of how people understand the world. And people who have higher levels of SDO tend to see the world in this dog-eat-dog competitive worldview. And it's genuinely this broad worldview that they see in all these different aspects. But one thing that I have found is when I ask about political groups rather than groups, then you get a normal distribution of SDO, which very rarely happens when you use the traditional the traditional measure. And so from that perspective, I think people are willing to share some beliefs that they have around, do they think that some groups are better than others? It's really about the context that might impose this social desirability aspect, but it just seems to dampen the response rather than alter the way that it looks. So the people who might genuinely be a seven on the scale are now a four. In a 2019 paper, you did several studies looking at SDO, so the social dominance orientation, and empathy towards things happening to other people. Specifically, you found that people who were high in SDO showed less empathy and more counter-empathy. So that's just like feeling the opposite emotion in a sense that they should feel. So feeling good when something bad happens to someone else and feeling bad when something good happens to someone else. These mm-hmm. have fancy German names that I'll let Kira <laughs> say. And so you found that this was also especially strong in intergroup context, such that this effect was stronger for white participants who are high in SDO responding to events occurring to Black and Asian targets. So could you just mm-hmm. explain a little bit more about the study and why you think we found those effects? Great question. So in this study or these sets of studies, I was interested in the relationship between SDO, empathy, and counter-empathy. Just for a little bit of definitions, I am focusing on the affective forms of empathy. So empathy can be cognitive, like how I understand people's emotional states. It can also be how I feel. 
And so if you've ever, I don't know, watched somebody on walking along a tightrope and your body also sways, that is that embodiment of empathy. I am feeling something similar to what I assume you are feeling. And so empathy is the a congruent emotional reaction that someone like has in reaction to the assumed emotional state of another person. So it is a little bit of an assumption. I have to assume that when you are feeling bad, I'm then feeling bad. That is negative empathy. And I think that's our more colloquial understanding of empathy. You're really sad about getting, I don't know, a 60 on a test. And I feel really bad because you're sad. I feel negative empathy with you. But I can also feel an empathy towards you. So if you get 100 on an exam and I'm happy because of your happiness, that is a positive form of, of empathy. And so when you think about empathy, it's not just negative. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is that we measure both types in this study. So now it relates to counter empathy. So counter empathy is when I feel the assumed, the opposite, the opposite, the, sorry, yes, the opposite emotion that I'm assuming that you feel. So in the case of schadenfreude is when I think that you're feeling bad and because of you feeling bad, I feel good. That would be schadenfreude. And then you have Glückschmerz when it's the reverse of that. So if you feel really good and because you feel good, I feel bad, that is Glückschmerz. And so you think about the relationship between empathy and counter empathy, they feel like opposite sides of the same coin, but they're actually not. So the relationship between empathy and schadenfreude, or sorry, empathy and counter empathy in my work, the correlations rarely go above 0.4 and sometimes they're not significant at all. So it's not the case that me feeling a lack of empathy has to mean I feel counter empathy. There is like this indifferent state that's in the middle where you can have these two orthogonal dimensions. I can feel empathy and I can feel counter empathy. And I think we feel conflicting emotions all the time. So it makes sense that you can be high on both or low on both, high on one, low on one, et cetera, et cetera. Just as, I don't know, as an example, you might have an arch nemesis who something bad is happening to them. They're stuttering on stage or something. Okay. They're stuttering on stage and you feel good because you're like, that's what they get. But you also recognize just how rough it can be stuttering on stage. So you do feel some empathy too. Anywho, so that was a lot of background just to say what I found. So what we ended up doing is measuring people's levels of SEO and then measuring how much empathy and counter empathy they felt towards in-group and out-group members on really mild things. Like I introduced a target, let's just say George, and I would say, hey, here's George and George stubbed his toe. How good does this make you feel? And how bad does this make you feel? Because stubbing your toe is a negative thing, By asking how good I feel, that is me expressing my schadenfreude. And asking how bad I feel, that's me expressing negative empathy. But if George also, George could have eaten a really good sandwich, that's a good thing happening to George. Me indicating how bad I feel will be glückschmerz, and me indicating how good I feel would be positive empathy. And so we measured the amount of empathy and counter-empathy people felt towards white, Asian, and Black targets experiencing these really mild positive and really mild negative events. And all participants in this study were white. And what we found was that as a function of their SDO, so the more that people felt that certain groups were at the top and others at the bottom, the less empathy that these people felt and the more counter-empathy that they felt overall, but especially towards Asian and Black outgroup members. Now, it's important to note that this effect of like this interaction between SDO emotions and target race 
only happened when we primed competitiveness in people's minds. So when we first did, when we had no prime, we found the relationship between SDO, empathy, and counter-empathy, but no moderation by race. So race didn't matter for these relationships. It was only after we started to prime groupiness in participants' minds that then this relationship between SDO, empathy, and counter-empathy started to differ by race. And so the first thing that we did was remind people about their in-group by having them fill out a racial identification scale before they did the task. And so in this study, participants indicated how much they liked their in-group, how much they identified with their in-group. And there we found that only empathy was changed by race. So as SDO increased, participants felt less empathy towards out-group members, but there was no relationship between SDO and empathy for white in-group members. But the counter-empathy stuff, schadenfreude and glücksmerz, no difference by race. It was only after we primed a competitive sense between groups by having participants fill out a like realistic threat scale that talked about the dangers that ethnic minorities pose to white interests. That's where we found uh, the difference by race for schadenfreude. So as SDO increased, participants felt more schadenfreude, but especially towards Black and Asian targets. And so just to give a sense of the effect, if you take someone with the lowest levels of SDO and the highest levels of SDO and look at the difference in the amount of schadenfreude that they felt towards these different targets, I think that difference was about eight points for white in-group targets, but 27 points for black out-group targets. So people, as a function of their SDO, are feeling almost a fourth of the scale, this is on a zero to 100 scale, we're almost moving a fourth of the scale on how much schadenfreude they were feeling when George stubbed his toe. So could you talk a little bit more about why you think that priming competition makes such a huge difference? And also, given that you didn't see those effects when you didn't prime competition, do you think that this means that generally like we wouldn't really be experiencing these types of emotions for outgroups? Or do you think this is just showing that anyone who maybe is primed to you as competition, that you could feel this kind of counter empathy for if your social dominance orientation is a bit higher? Absolutely. So you're on the track that I've been thinking of, which is schadenfreude is often felt in competitive settings. Makes a lot of sense that we feel good when (laughs) something bad happens to somebody that we feel in competition with. In SDO, like I mentioned, reflects a competitive view of the world. And so it makes sense that these two things are related just in general. But SDO is also about groups. And so when you take a competitive setting that's also very groupy, it makes sense that these two things are interrelated. And so I tested that, this idea that competition is an environment that sort of activates this relationship between SDO and schadenfreude by taking, by doing a minimal groups paradigm. So that was the last study in this packet where we were trying to do two things. One, we were trying to see whether or not we can move beyond the racial context, but also thinking whether or not this is about groups or is this about status? Because when you have white participants looking or sharing their emotions towards Black and Asian targets, that could be about group dynamics or it could be about high status, low status, high power, low power. And so by going into a minimal groups paradigm, we're at least removing the status and power component and just leaving the groupiness. And so what we did 
was have people randomly assigned to be an Eagles or a Rattlers, which is like taking homage to old school social psych. And the important part is the Eagles and the Rattlers were either competing for a prize or cooperating for a prize. Now, this is a novel groups paradigm, not a minimal group paradigm. I can't remember if I said it's minimal. It's not. It's novel because there was, from the point of the participants, some basis for the groups. So we had them fill out this bogus personality scale and said, oh, because of your personality, you are an eagle versus you're a rabbit. That was a lie, but in their minds, there was some reason for the groups. And so if the eagles were competing versus cooperating for this prize is what we told them. And then we said, you know what? We just want you to get to know your teammates. And so then they did that same state empathy task that I described before, where you had George, George stubbed his toe or he was eating really good sandwiches and how good and how bad did that make you feel? And what we found was in the case where people were competing for a prize, the same effects that I that we saw with race occurred, that as a function of people's levels of SEO, they were feeling more empathy towards, or sorry, less empathy towards outgroups and more counter empathy towards outgroups. There was a, it got a little bit different for empathy towards in-group members, but I'm not going to talk about that. But the more interesting part was what happens when these two groups were cooperating. And there you found that SDO was not related at all to how much empathy and counter-empathy they were feeling towards both in-group and out-group members. And so while it seems that uh, just like not knowing anything about people, SDO is likely related to trait levels of counter-empathy and trait levels of empathy. Just on the surface, this is how I'm feeling. But the important part of measuring empathy and counter-empathy in the moment and towards particular targets is because just because in general, I don't feel empathy or just because in general, I feel counter-empathy doesn't mean I'm going to feel it all the time and towards everybody. And so what we're finding is in a cooperative setting where I need you and you need me, that like, some groups be at the top and others at the bottom, leading to these emotions gets broken. Like that link is attenuated. And it makes a lot of sense for it to be attenuated because why should SDO be related to empathy in the first place? It's because if you really believe that some groups be at the top and others at the bottom, you can't really feel empathy, especially for those at the bottom, because they need to be there. <laughs> so if you do feel empathy towards them, you're likely going to engage in pro-social helping behaviors, which then pulls them out of their low status positions, which reduces the hierarchy. And you don't think that's how things should be. Now, from a counter-empathic point of view, counter-empathic emotions are really spiteful and nasty that lead you probably to harm other people. And so that makes sense why if I really believe in hierarchy, I'm going to aim those emotions again towards people at the bottom of the hierarchy to reify the hierarchy that I really believe should exist in the first place. But as soon as you wrap all of that in a cooperative setting, all of that logic goes to pieces. And it makes sense that the connection between SDO and these emotions also then goes to pieces. So in this other paper, you talk about how empathy and counter empathy can be related to different outcomes, mm -hmm. which you're hinting at in, in that answer. And so I was wondering if you could explain that paper and just talk a little bit about your findings there. But also speaking to the answer you just gave, how motivated do you think this type of reaction is? So are they doing this on purpose in a sense? Or is it because as you said, it's it's in their best interest as someone who believes in hierarchy to not be expressing empathy and to show counter empathy? But is that because of 
that kind of wisdom, which I think is no longer wisdom, maybe that empathy is like effortful. So you don't, there's no point in you expressing it. Or can they choose if they wanted to be empathetic or to not express counter empathy? All great questions. I'm going to answer the second one first, which is this motivated? I believe it's motivated. And I remember as I was writing my dissertation, constantly talking about the functional relationship. And my advisor, Mina Chakara, kept saying, Kira, you have not measured functionality. Stop it. <laughs> and I, it got to the point where she's just tested. Go measure it if this is really what you think. And so there's some cool work by Nora Cataly and I think it's his student at the time, where they find that SDL can be positively related to empathy, but for advantage groups. So if you're telling me that advantage groups are being harmed, empathy can increase as a function of SDO. And in my last study in that paper, I found that there was a positive relationship between SDO and empathy for in-group members. And notice that in that context, there's actually no, there's no hierarchy yet because these two groups are fairly equal. And so the way that I thought about that finding and I haven't followed up on it is when there is no hierarchy, you actually do want to feel empathy towards your in-group so that you can engage in these pro-social behaviors to have in-group favoritism so that the hierarchy goes in the direction that you would want it to. Makes a lot of sense. Why you would aim empathy towards in-groups and aim counter-empathy towards out-groups. So I do think it's motivated, and I have tried to test this a bit in um, a paper that's also under review, where I asked people, okay, so let's get some targets. And I use the stereotype content model as my targets because the stereotype content model has also been related to schadenfreude. We tend to feel a lot of schadenfreude towards groups that are seen as cold, but competent. And so I wanted to see, okay, do does SDO matter in these dynamics? And what I did was do the same paradigm where I'm asking, you know, about George and how George stubbed his toe. But in the first study, I just asked people, what do you think George feels? Because if this is motivated, I need to first make sure that people with higher levels of SDO can actually recognize the emotions in others. So it's, I recognize that you probably in pain. I just don't care. Like that needs to be present for motivation. And that's pretty much what we find. That SEO is not related to how much, how good or how bad George feels, but is related to how good and how bad I feel. Then we asked, okay, how much empathy and schadenfreude do you want to feel? When you ask about want, there's actually no difference between how much you want to feel and how much you actually feel. Now, a null effect is hard to say, okay, that's the thing. And so what we then did was gave people a choice. We said, you know what? Hey, look, we're going to tell you this target. Imagine you have a target. And we either did targets that were always cold, but either high in competence or low in competence, again, from the stereotype content model. And we said, okay, so you know, George is either a drug addict or George is a home, an investment banker. That's all you know about George. Do you want to feel empathy towards George, schadenfreude towards George, or nothing at all? And we defined what empathy and schadenfreude meant. And what we found is as a function of SDO, the more SDO, you, the higher your levels of SDO, the less likely you wanted to feel empathy and the more likely you wanted to feel schadenfreude. So what are you actually choosing to feel? Like, I'm choosing, I want to feel schadenfreude towards George. But what was interesting is that relationship was even sharper for these low status groups compared to the high status groups. All of that together, if you take some work by Dr. Katine, other things, it does seem like there is some motivation going on that people with higher levels of SEO can recognize emotions of others. They can feel higher levels of empathy if they want to, 
but it's only in particular situations that I think are in line with their ideology, which is, I believe that some groups be at the top and others at the bottom. So that kind of answers, hopefully, the ideology question. But then you had a separate question, which is how do these, how, almost the so what question. So why do we care that SDO is related to empathy and counter empathy? I'm like, that's a really good question. Because I'm like, ooh, look what I found. It's like, why do we care that you found those things? And I think we care because these emotions lead to important behaviors. So there's been decades of work, right, that empathy leads to pro-social behaviors. That's why empathy is almost always targeted in these intergroup contexts. Like we want people to feel empathy for outgroups so that they are treating them kindly and helping them, et cetera, et cetera. But as I've been reading and thinking, I'm like, but what is the opposite of empathy? You go to that question of the relationship between empathy and counter-empathy and how that correlation is not that high. And I think the lack of empathy is indifference. Indifference doesn't lead to these violent intergroup conflicts that we're seeing all over the place. So so empathy can't be the only story. So you need something else. And so what I started to research is the importance of counter-empathy in explaining some of this intergroup harm. And so you find that SDO is related both to not helping and to harming. That relationship has already been established. What I have started to think about is the role of empathy and counter-empathy as a mediator between SDO and these types of not like harmful behaviors. And so if you think about why is it bad that people don't help, it's because that's a form of passive harm. If I'm not helping you and you are drowning, I'm essentially letting you drown. That is a problem. But also, if I actively harm you while you're drowning, I pick up this big rock and drop it on your head, it makes it even harder for you to get to the surface, that's also harm. And so you find that, again, SEO is related to these things. And what I have been researching is that empathy is almost a unique mediator between SDO and helping behaviors, but it's counter-empathy that's the unique mediator between SDO and these more harmful behaviors. And so in this paper, I studied policy support and how certain policies are helpful and certain policies are harmful and what emotional reactions mediate the relationship between SDO and these helpful and harmful policies. And so I found that empathy is a stronger mediator between SDO and helpful policies. I looked at towards undocumented immigrants, LGBT people, poor people, welfare recipients, so a whole bunch of different targets. Across them, you find that empathy is the mediator between SDO and not supporting helpful policies, but Schadenfreude is a mediator between SDO and not supporting or supporting harmful policies. And the harmful policies that I measured, I use a scale called the Posse Scale, which measures the extent to which you are willing to engage in behaviors that increasingly harm the outgroup. So I had people imagine that immigration is going to be outlawed. To what extent would you, is it true that you would support the law? Would you tell your neighbors about it? Would you support torture for undocumented immigrants to tell on other undocumented immigrants? The extent to which you would be willing to form a posse and target these groups. You find that it's schadenfreude and not empathy that is the driver of why people support those policies as a function of their SDO. Broadly speaking, uh, the, the thing that I think about this work is empathy is not enough to explain why people harm others or members of other groups. And I think we need to think about other emotions. So I'm not saying that schadenfreude is the only emotion that can do this, but clearly it's not just about empathy in trying to resolve these intergroup conflicts. 
it's just a question of even if we know this, what can we do about it? Because I feel like empathy interventions in general often fail. Like I've seen a couple talks in the last couple months where the biggest barriers that people don't want to engage, like they don't care. So how do we actually get people to stop feeling counter empathy or to feel more empathy for outgroup? And have you thought about that? I absolutely have thought about that. I think the answer lies in why competitive and cooperative settings differ so much. And I think that if we can get people to see their outcomes as interdependent, that might be one of the best things that we can do. I don't have to change how you feel about the outgroup or whatnot, but the extent to which I think my fate is tied up with your fate, that that changes the nature of things. Like I think about family and how you might not like your younger brother. I don't know if you have a younger brother. I love my younger brother, but imagine I didn't like him whatsoever. I can recognize that my behaviors towards him is going to impact me because I'm, we're part of the same family. I can't just go wild out on him because my mother's going to go, really, Kira, what are you doing? Be nice to your brother, blah, blah, blah. But if he was not a member of my family, like he was just some random person, I would have much more freedom to do what I would want to do towards him. And actually, in many ways, that's in part why gender is a unique hierarchy in social dominance theory, because men can't just go eradicate women. If they did, the human race would just be over. There, because of that interdependence between men and women, it forces a different type of interaction. Now, clearly, it doesn't eliminate pain and harm and like overt violence because we see violence towards women everywhere. But it does prevent, it decreases the ceiling of that harm. You can't go so far because it just, it wouldn't work. And in many ways, I think the carrot, the benevolent sexism exists because honey always gets what more flies than vinegar. So I do think there's something important about a competitive setting, but that also to me underlies that we just need more work on schadenfreude. We've done so much work on empathy. And I think as psychologists, we shy away from the darker stuff. We're like, hey, we don't want to talk about blatant racism and blatant sexism. That's in the past. It's like, nah, that exists right now. And I think we're doing a disservice to not focus on it. We don't want to talk about contempt and spite and schadenfreude because we want to think that humans are good people. And they are good people. But we absolutely feel these emotions. And because we feel these emotions and we don't even have a word for it. Like, why doesn't English have a word for Schadenfreude? Why did we have to go to the Germans in order to figure it out? And all we know, the power of labeling, that when you're able to label something, we have a better handle on it. I think after former President Trump got COVID, the percent, like the percentage of Google searches of the word Schadenfreude increased by 10,000% because People were like, wait a second, there's a word to explain what I am feeling right now? Yes, there is. And so I think that with more work, I think we'll be able to answer that question of what to do. But I think it's important to know that schadenfreude might be part of the reason why that you have this intergroup like conflict. I think it's important to know, is there intergroup conflict because I'm just not interested in helping you or I actually want to harm you or I'm interested in your pain? And I think that difference might explain why when I think about um, the COVID-19 pandemic and people were calling on folks to be empathic towards people who didn't get vaccines or whatnot, 
that backfired for a lot of people. And I think it backfired because it wasn't that it was a lack of empathy. It was, I am pissed at you. I'm angry. And so I'm actually getting some pleasure at your misfortune. And this is not just that I don't really care. It's I do care. I care a lot that you are being harmed. Okay, so you don't think that the answer lies in being like, you should try to be more empathetic or feel less counter empathy. It's more sneaky interventions that affect like more of the structure of how they're perceiving the intergroup situation in general and not just being like, you should feel more empathy or you should not feel these negative feelings. I think in general, some of the best interventions that you can do deal with the air that people breathe. Like people, that's like when you think about implicit bias. It's better to deal with the structure around the context so that you put people in different situations and you naturally let contact do its job. Yeah, you can force it, but I think when you do force it, you end up in situations where it backfires or it doesn't last. And it doesn't last because the environment itself can't support the intervention. Now, of course, that's harder, it's much easier said than done, but I do think that a structural approach is better, but that doesn't mean that there can't be a intervention on shot. I just don't know what that would necessarily look like because just saying that schadenfreude is not normative doesn't mean that people don't feel it. In general, people don't want to admit that they feel schadenfreude in the first place. So you're already dealing with a very sneaky emotion that people only admit when they feel psychologically safe to admit. And so I don't know what a like a target emotion towards a person would be to not feel schadenfreude. The only thing I got is hopefully a empathy intervention might also impact schadenfreude. It's not necessarily clear though, if that's the case. We need more research. More research should be done on schadenfreude, but people are, I actually think we're going to be in the age of schadenfreude. That sounds terrible, but I think more people are focusing on schadenfreude as a really cool emotion to study. So one of the things I noticed, so Kira's talking about Schadenfreude, but I was listening to this and thinking, oh, I have never experienced this. I consider myself a good person. Oh, I would never feel joy at someone suffering. A real strong reaction to that. And then she mentions the example of Trump getting COVID. And there was this uh, moment. Yeah, it's so funny. You don't even want to associate with feeling happy, but you kind of, given the whole context, work or a bit like, yeah. So I thought that was a very good example for those of us who don't want to identify with (laughs) someone who experiences this emotion. With Trump, I feel like it's an interesting example also, and maybe can make you feel better about yourself because... I think like one of the main points that Kira was talking about was that she's looking at people who are high in social dominance orientation. So who believe that there should be hierarchies and those people tend to really feel schadenfreude also for low status targets. So people who are not in positions of power, such as being the president of the United States. So I feel like as long as you at least can tell yourself that you don't feel those emotions for people who are of lower status who might need your help, then you're probably okay. Um, okay. And I think a really interesting thing that came out of what Kira was saying was this idea of this experience of schadenfreude being motivated. And there's some other work by Mina Chakara, who was one of Kira's advisors, which show that 
we do have these sort of motivated responses to outgroup members and specifically as Kira was saying outgroup members that we feel like we're in competition with which with a political climate I think it's like a very clear example of a moment in time in which we are feeling competition with a different group so at least you can tell yourself that your egalitarian values are very internalized but that maybe this does have an impact on you being able to bridge party lines or something like that so that is of course extrapolating a lot I guess that's a good thing Another thing I was wondering in terms of this social dominance measure and how people feel about that, do you think that is something that we grow to learn or it's something that people are just naturally born with more over others or it's impacted by the culture you're in? I was wondering if there's research in what influences the level of this you have. That's a good question. I would say that there's evidence at least that it's learned to some extent. Kira also mentioned the fact that men on average, white people on average, rich people on average tend to have higher social dominance scores, meaning that they believe that there should be hierarchies. And I think that is obviously due to the fact that they are in these positions of power and they want to believe that there's a reason for that. There's another concept called just world beliefs, which is thinking that the world is as it should be and it's unpleasant for us to think that the world is unfair. And especially if you're in a position of power, it's detrimental to you if you're already doing well to be like, oh, something is wrong here because you're benefiting from the system. So I think it definitely has to do in part with your position in society. I think norms of a society definitely also influence how people respond to these questions. So when we discussed what people actually mean when they are responding that they really don't have a preference for hierarchy, when they really don't want hierarchies in society, I think a big part of that, as Kira said, is that there's very strong egalitarian norms in the U.S. In the U.S. in general, there are these like myths where, you know, everyone is supposed to start from the same place. You work hard enough. You can achieve the American dream. Anyone can do it. And so the U.S. is based on a very kind of non-hierarchical view of the world, even though we can argue also that like the meritocracy in itself is a hierarchy because we believe that people who work harder, who are better should be at the top of society, a different topic. But I think that there is a cultural influence for sure. And and I, I think what we've seen in general in cultures is that norms are not always internalized, but they often are. So I think that in societies where hierarchy is more important, I'm sure there are studies that show that there is higher SDO in general, that there are cultural differences in how much a given culture is oriented towards hierarchies. So I think for the most part, it's probably something that is learned, but don't quote me on that. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what intersectionality is and why you think it's important and how it has maybe been understudied or not studied at all in psych. Oh, yeah. I can get on a soapbox for hours to talk about intersectionality. So intersectionality is the idea that hierarchies are intertwined, that when you think about racism and sexism, phobia, homophobia, that the processes involved in one hierarchy influence the processes involved in the other. And that logically makes sense in terms of psychology and how psychology approaches it. There are fields in psychology that have thought about intersectionality for decades. Critical race theory, feminist arguments, like all of that has been seeped in intersectionality 
for forever. And so it's not that psychology doesn't touch intersectionality. I think there are just some like fundamental aspects of psychology that make it difficult to study. For example, intersectionality is a theory that is simultaneously falsifiable and non-falsifiable. Intersectionality is almost a way of thinking, a way of approaching problems, a way of asking who is in my sample and does that matter? And psychology doesn't always think about those things. Like we get into the weird samples that a lot of psychology research done on Western, educated, industrialized countries, forgot what that, rich and democratic, right? So we already recognize our work is not representative. But then the, what intersectionality would say is, why does that matter? Why does it matter that we did it in democratic versus non-democratic spaces? So once you start to ask those questions, you're in the realm of intersectionality. Once you start to ask, why does it matter that my sample is all white people? Would this effect be different for Black people? Once you start to ask those questions, intersectionality. And so that's why that's a non-falsifiable thing to say that people's experiences differ at the intersection of identity. You can't really falsify that, which is why psychology, I think, struggles with it. But also, you then have theories within, like you have intersectional theories that start to put parameters around how do these things interact that can be falsified, such as the theory of gendered prejudice. The other reason why I think psychology struggles is think about the quintessential psych experiment. That would be that you change a single thing that everything else is the same, you change one thing and show that change predicts some downstream consequence. You can't study intersectionality that way. (laughs) Or if you do, you have to be, you already have to be in subsets of subsets. I can take women, but let me take people who identify as a lesbian and people who identify as straight. And then that's my one change. Okay, let me see that. But I already have to recognize that women are not a monolith in order for me to even get to that subset to change one thing. And so I think that's why in psychology, intersectionality has has struggled. It shouldn't. I think there's been an explosion of research on intersectionality. People are starting to really take, like, how should we predict the intersection? I think the more that we do that, the more, like, the richer our science will be and actually more accurate. For example, when we talk about gender, what do we mean when we say that men and women are different? Are we talking about gender, meaning their gender identity? Are we talking about their gender expression? That Are we talking about the clothes that they wear? And that's really the driver of the effect. Are we talking about the roles that society has placed on them? And that is the effect. Are we really talking about sexual orientation that we've aligned with gender in all these ways? As soon as you start to take this like broad concept that really has a whole bunch of assumptions underneath it and start to break those assumptions, we actually get to a better sense of what's going on. Why do women feel stereotype threat in math domains? Is it truly because they're women? Or is it this assumption about roles? Would lesbian women not feel stereotype threat in math domains? What about gay men? Do they experience it because people put femininity on them? So you just, to me, you get much better questions. Okay, so that's intersectionality. Then I'll say a little bit about the theory of gender prejudice, which I did not come up with. I have argued with my advisor I really think the day we met, we argued about the theory of gender prejudice and just never stopped because I have some really strong thoughts about it. So what the theory of gender prejudice is, it takes social dominance theory and intertwines it with parental investment theory. And parental investment theory is just that men and women have different parental investments in children, such that men have much less investment into a child than a woman does. 
purely from the how long does it take a man to contribute to a baby as long as it takes him to ejaculate, whereas a woman has to gestate that baby for nine months. But then there's also, so that's a physical toll on the body. And then you have, okay, once this baby is out, who's going to feed it? This baby can't eat regular food. So the mom still has to provide milk, whereas the dad technically doesn't have to provide anything. And I think once, you know, the baby is weaned, then technically the man and the woman could give equal amounts of parental investment, but they don't. Okay. So if you take that, what that means is men and women have different, like, reproductive needs, like survival of the fitness, blah, blah, blah. Men need to amass resources in order to get mates because women are the choose your sex. They're the choose your sex because nine months is costly. So they really need to aim in order for them to increase their reproductive fitness. They have to make every baby count. Every baby has to be as healthy as that baby can be in order for that baby to survive. How am I going to, how's that baby going to survive? I need nutrients. So I need to have a mate who can provide. Men don't have to be choosy. Their reproductive fitness is increased by giving the least amount of resources as they possibly can to as many people as possible. So let's take those different motivations of men and women and collide it with intergroup conflict. When you collide it with intergroup conflict, that means that it's really only men that benefit from intergroup conflict. Why is a woman like fighting with another woman of a different social group over Men, it doesn't actually behoove them as much. Whereas men do need to fight in order to get the land, the money, the whatever resources are valued in that particular society, men have to fight over that. And so when you look at historically, conflict is a male on male phenomenon. It is the men that are going off and fighting all these wars against other men, blah, blah, blah. That's where intergroup clashes happen. And so what the argument of theory gender prejudice is that coalitional violence, that arbitrary set group conflict is a male-on-male phenomenon. And what women primarily receive is sexism, not necessarily that coalitional violence. So my advisor would argue that Black women receive predominantly sexism. They don't really receive racism, at least not nearly to the extent as Black men receive. That is the argument of gender prejudice. I fundamentally disagree. And it's been a lot of fun to argue with him, misarguing with him about it. Could you share a little bit about yeah. what you think is going on? And do you think that this is an effective way to also be thinking about intersectionality in terms of it being about the ways that people find mates? Yeah. So I I do think that there it makes sense to think about how humans have evolved because there are traces of that in what we do. So why do we crave sweet things? We crave sweet things because in the wild, sweet things tend to have higher caloric density. And so it makes sense that uh, we love it. But of course, in modern society, that urge does not behoove us very much because there are sweet things everywhere. And that's how you get people eating more calories than they probably should. So from that perspective, evolutionary psychology has some use. I think the use of intersection evolutionary psychology here, I think is interesting. And I think it leads us to different predictions than we would have gotten elsewhere. And it's falsifiable from the sense of we can see the patterns of racism and sexism and homophobia, all these different things, and map it onto the predictions of the theory of gender prejudice. From that perspective, Jim would say he has so much evidence. He's look at police shootings. It is 
men predominantly shooting men. That is just true. What do you mean? Women are just not getting any of this stuff. And I have struggled with their gender prejudice. And it took me a while to articulate why I struggled with it. And so at this point, I think that the theory of gender prejudice ha- is for the most part correct, but the issue with it is that it's incomplete. So the way that I see it is that Jim and his colleagues have investigated a spotted cow of intersectionality, has only investigated the black spots and have concluded that the cow is black. So all the evidence that comes to bear and the black spots are there, those spots exist, but somehow they systematically forgot the white spots. And I think what those white spots are is going back to a parental investment theory would be how would you discriminate against a man and a woman? So think about it. If I'm trying to reduce the reproductive fitness of a woman, what I would do is reduce her ability to choose. That would be sexual violence. That would be stereotypes that relate to sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. And guess what? Isn't it surprising that ethnic minority women are almost historically attached to stereotypes that talk about their promiscuity, whereas white women are seen as liberal? Oh, isn't that fascinating? So you get this sexism, but the sexism is racialized. That sexism is colored by their other identities. But again, we're using the same logic as a theory of gender prejudice, right? That reproductive fitness matters. Theory of gender prejudice always focus on how to increase it. But if you really think about coalitional conflict, it would be to decrease it. And if you think again about the reproductive fitness of women and lowering their ability to choose, how would that benefit both in-group and out-group? Or sorry, how would that benefit both in-group men and women? Now men get to spread their seed to people that they don't have to provide for. Because if you are sexually promiscuous, no one is going to hold me accountable for my actions towards you because you brought it on yourself. And we see that happening all over the place. But that also means that in-group women benefit because they are then the recipients of more resources because this man is not spreading it to more people because we've changed the way that these stereotypes operate along a group continuum. How do you reduce the reproductive fitness of men? You reduce their ability to amass status and resources. You lock them up. You uh, don't allow them to have economic resources. And we see that towards men. And that's a lot of the evidence that my advisor has amassed towards men of different groups. But women still receive sexism. And so women also still get that excluding from amassing their own status and resources. And so you're able to see how double jeopardy can fit in to this dynamic. And it makes sense that when you're first thinking about a woman, especially a woman who is from a different group that, I don't know, where the norms are established, sure, Towards them, we're going to do all of the reduced reproductive fitness, the sexual harassment, the like all of that stuff that exists. But then as soon as they either can step away from that or work around that, they still get smacked down with good old sexism. And so I think in general, and this is actually something I'm trying to write up now, which is that there is this tension between like the types of discrimination that men and women receive is not a difference of degree. It's a difference of kind that they receive different types. And I don't think it's fair for someone to say that one is worse than another. And I think that's what my advisor fundamentally did. He is saying it is worse to be killed than to be raped. And I don't think you can make that distinction at all. I think these are a difference of kind. And to say that one is worse, I just don't think it's necessary to understand 
how intergroup conflict might be impacted by these evolutionary pressures on people. I was just wondering if you could talk about the empirical paper that you did on intersectionality and whether you feel Mm. like you applied the theory of gender prejudice in that or whether it was just more of an exploration of how different identities intersect. Good question. So I would say both. So the paper is on normative stereotypes and how normative stereotypes, what they are at the intersection of race and gender and sexual orientation. And so what I was just curious about is So normative stereotypes are what like people should and should not do. And there's a whole bunch of work on gender normative stereotypes. So what men and women should do, so that's prescriptive stereotypes, and what they shouldn't do, which is proscriptive stereotypes. So for example, women shouldn't be like leaders. Like they shouldn't be agentic. They should be warm and kind. And men should probably be warm and kind, but they don't have, that is not as applied to them, but they should be agentic. And they shouldn't be weak, for example. And so the reason why we care about normative stereotypes is because normative stereotypes, especially when you're violating proscriptive ones, is where you get a lot of backlash. So if you think about a woman and being a leader, descriptively, I can say that women are not leaders. But that just suggests that I have a bias of thinking that women are not leaders. But if a woman can show that she has the necessary traits, experience, blah, 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 of being a leader... That should be fine, but it's not because now she's violating nor- like normative expectations and then she receives backlash so that she can be where she should be. Now, I think when you start to ask those questions at the intersection, things get a little complicated. So we take that men should be assertive. Should Black men be assertive because they're men? Or does their race alter the normative nature of assertiveness? Of course it does. And we know this. But then we still talk about men and women in work on normative stereotypes. I just don't think it applies. But there hasn't been any work on normative stereotypes, at least in a systematic way. Like there have been, there there definitely has been work on normative stereotypes at the intersection. But what I wanted to do was to get a landscape of normative stereotypes. So let's ask about a whole bunch of stereotypes at the intersection of gender, sexual orientation, gender, and race, and see how they match up to One, a control condition where we just use men and women, and then also to the prototypical group in uh, the United States. So for sexual orientation, it would be straight, and for race, it would be white. And what we found overall is that, one, gender stereotypes exist, normative stereotypes exist, and persist. So looking at the difference between men and women, you get the same things that we've been seeing for decades. But the group that most matches on to the, that control condition are the prototypical ones, which would be straight men and women and white men and women. What you also find, though, and this is the thing that I think is really important, is that gender becomes muted for non-prototypical groups, meaning that the difference in the desirability of a given trait, so let's just take assertiveness, the difference between a Black man and a Black woman on assertiveness is minuscule compared to the difference between a white man and a white woman on assertiveness or between a man and a woman on assertiveness. The gender nature of these stereotypes in terms of how normative they are tends to go away for the non-prototypical group. What that then means is you see a huge gap between men in line with the theory of gender prejudice, that the normative stereotypes of a white man versus a black man, huge gap. 
the normative stereotypes between a white woman and a black woman, super small. Jim would say, look, I found the theory of gender prejudice. The way that I see it, though, you also find smaller gender gaps amongst Black people. So I could say, actually, Black women only receive racism. They don't receive sexism. Who's correct? Who knows? But to me, what the biggest thing is, Black men, Black women, and white women are all at the same level, and white men are privileged in terms of these stereotypes, which would suggest that there is some, you can think about it more as white men are privileged and everybody is seen as low status comparatively. So whether or not your gender prejudice was supported, I have been finding more and more in my work is that there is a degendering of groups at the intersection. Like non-prototypical groups are not really seen as women or men first. They're seen as their like marginalized group identity first. And from there, gender gets added into the mix. But I think gender gets added into the mix in this way that I talked about before, which is we want to discriminate against you because you're an out group. How we're going to do it does depend on your gender, but I'm really thinking about you as this out group member first. That is something I've been muddling around with in my head. I still have many more studies and things to think about in order to formalize that. But I have been like getting to this idea that gender doesn't seem to predict as much as you would expect it to for non-prototypical groups. I thought that the theory of gendered prejudice, which we didn't talk about too much in detail, but I think there was a good overview given. I guess what I found interesting about it was that it was a kind of actually sort of rare integration of something that's very social psychology-y with something that's very evolutionary psychology based with this parental investment theory. And in evolutionary psychology, the prevailing wisdom is that gender sex differences and patriarchy are like a natural kind that you can't get rid of or it would be more difficult to get rid of. Whereas race and race-based differentiations are really just co-opting a coalitional mindset. So race is just one more way to build coalitions, whereas gender is something that really is a category that is ingrained in us. And I, I wasn't expecting this theory to have that kind of stance where like gender was the central construct in some ways. Not that it's the central construct because I don't think that's really the case, but it's that it comes to the conclusion, which Kira said she doesn't necessarily agree with, but it comes to this conclusion that men are the ones that really suffer from racism, whereas women are the ones that suffer from sexism and don't suffer from racism. It's pretty clear that like that's not the experience of women of color. And I think also in terms of at least my lived experience as a mixed person, which like I know there's a lot of discourse about the fact that Asian American women, for example, like we actually make more money than white women on the dollar, which is crazy. So there's all these different status things there. But even in that case, I feel that my Asian identity or my person of color identity, because I'm half white, but I think no one categorizes me directly as white when they meet me. I think that always comes first for me than my identity as a woman. And I've heard that from a lot of women of color as well when we talk about identity. So I thought that it was really interesting that in this theory, it sh in some ways it should predict the opposite. And I'm not sure that Kira or Jim would agree with that, but that 
you would think that women would feel the effects of their gender more so than their race, which I don't think is the case. So it's interesting when you were describing your experience. It's really funny because first of all, I would feel more strongly that I identify as a woman and I wouldn't feel strongly. It's not something that I would be proud of and identify as being white. So I think first of all, I feel more more close to, or I didn't really know how to describe it, being a woman first. So it's funny that our experiences are the opposite in that sense. There is this phenomenon in in psych with mixed race people that's called hypodescent. And this is a little bit different, but it shows that people who are mixed race, so the paradigm case is usually black, white, biracials, or any biracial really, are more likely to be perceived as their most marginalized identity. And that's also the reason that I would identify more as Asian than white, which is similar to how people perceive biracial people. I also feel like I identify in that way. And I think maybe there's like something to that with these other types of identities. But I don't think that people would look at me and think Asian person first before anything else, because I don't think that's the case. But I think maybe here in terms of identification, There's just something to being attached to, in a sense, a more marginalized identity or an identity that you feel like is more salient because there's more work to do or you perceive that there's more work to do in that avenue and you're more likely to identify there. But I think that could be what's it. If you identify with a group that has suffered more or any of these things, it might be something that you would put to the forefront of your identity as yeah and like being proud that you are part of that community and wanting to be more of a voice for that so yeah it could but yeah who knows but maybe that that could be one reason so I was also talking to one of my friends about this she is a woman she identifies as a woman she grew up in India and she was saying that even now she feels like she still identifies as a woman first before identifying as brown because around her when she was growing up that was the salient identity since everyone else was also Indian. So being Indian or being brown wasn't salient. But her female identity was much more salient and also caused her to suffer more as well. What I thought was interesting was that she also said that moving to the U.S. did shift that for her in some ways because when she came to the U.S., her female identity wasn't as salient as being Indian or being brown. And... She was also saying that sometimes in some of the interactions that she's had, that she also is not sure whether she can attribute something to racism or sexism at times. So the race and gender are both important identities for her now. But I thought it was really interesting that in the cultural context or just the environment, that salient identity can really shift. And I think it still speaks to this kind of point that we were talking about of like your more marginalized identity being the one that you identify with most. And I wanted to add that in because I feel like up until now we've been saying pretty Western-centric things. Yeah, it's, I think that's super interesting. That, and I can't imagine how I would feel experiencing the other way. I'm thinking and I just can't connect with that version of Beth that would identify white first. Yeah, it, it, it's just interesting to think about. Thank you to Dr. Sakira Hudson for joining us this episode. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuza. 
We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Minds Matter. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Thank you.